Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Generation Anthropocene is supported by Stanford School of Earth, Energy, and Environmental Sciences. Find out more at earth.stanford.edu. We're also supported by Worldview Stanford, whose mission is to create interdisciplinary learning experiences for professionals. To learn more about Worldview, visit worldview.stanford.edu. 4.6 billion. The Earth forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Humans 20,000. Agricultural 250. Industrial revolution. Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene, where we talk about people, the planet, and people on the planet. I'm Leslie Chang. In a lot of our conversations, we've talked to people about when they think the Anthropocene begins, where they would draw the boundary in the geologic timetable. A couple years ago, we put this question to environmental historian John Christensen. He didn't exactly give us an answer, but he did give us a way of thinking about it. Here's what John said. You know, there's the the historian Stephen Pine who studies fire, and I think fire would be a really important marker because, you know, it begins to manage landscapes on a very grand scale. It's a basic human tool for managing landscapes is using fire, you know, to favor certain species that that we favor, that whether it's, you know, the, the, the grasslands or the animals that live in the grasslands that we hunt and eat, and then bringing fire inside, bringing fire then inside our machines to run our machines, you know, that really begins to accelerate the way in which we see human beings shaping the planet as a whole. Our producer, Miles Trayer, got interested in the deep time story of fire. How is fire different today than it was in the geologic past? Well, today we are going to explore that question. But before we get to all that, we have a short story to set the scene. Hear now the story of fire. In those old, old times, there lived two brothers, who were not like other men, nor yet like those mighty ones who lived upon the mountaintop. The name of the elder of these brothers was Prometheus, for he was always thinking of the future and making things ready for what might happen tomorrow. 
Prometheus did not care to live amid the clouds on the mountaintop. He went out amongst men to live with them and help them. As he was walking by the shore of the sea, he found a reed, or as some say, a tall stalk of fennel. He took the long stalk in his hands and reached the place of the sun in the early morning, just as the glowing golden orb was rising from the earth and beginning his daily journey through the sky. He touched the end of the long reed to the flames, and the dry pith caught fire and burned slowly. If only they had fire, said Prometheus to himself. This is the ancient Greek tale of the titan Prometheus, stealing fire from the gods and giving it to humans. And it is true that fire wasn't always around on Earth's surface. But it wasn't delivered to us from a smoldering stalk of fennel. Fire has a very real history, a scientific history, starting with a Promethean moment, so to speak. To understand the evolution of fire, we must first understand what fire is. The basics of fire, we go back to the old fire triangle, heat, fuel, and oxygen. That's what you need for fire. This is environmental historian Steve Pine. He studies fire history at the School of Life Sciences at Arizona State University. Fire turns out to be a real shapeshifter. And the fundamental fact of fire is that it synthesizes the stuff around it. And as the stuff changes, so fire changes. Again, we go back to the three basic factors, uh, heat, oxygen, and fuel. And all of those have their own evolution. Each point on the fire triangle is a window into Earth's history. Heat, in the form of lightning, has been around the longest, ever since Earth first developed its atmosphere. But oxygen and fuel have more recent origins. There was a time when the Earth didn't have an oxygenated atmosphere, and uh, life in the oceans made that possible. Earth's early atmosphere was very different from what it is today. For billions of years, it was a caustic mix of hydrogen sulfide, methane, and 10 to 200 times as much carbon dioxide. But somewhere around 2 billion years ago, microscopic bacteria floating in the primitive oceans began to absorb sunlight and carbon dioxide and breathe out oxygen. This was the birth of photosynthesis. For the first time in Earth's history, the atmosphere had free oxygen the second point of the fire triangle. Then there was a time when there was nothing to burn on land, and so life has to colonize uh, the continents. This begins 400, 420 million years ago, and then for another 50 million years or so, there still isn't enough plant growth or plants of the right kind or arrangement to really carry much fire. So it's, it's limited. The oxygen is there. Ignition sources are there, uh, but there just isn't enough stuff uh, on the land, enough combustibles to, to carry fire. For the vast majority of Earth's history, the final point of the fire triangle, fuel, was missing. Complex life was flourishing in the oceans, but the surface remained nothing but barren rock. There were no plants on land. Fire was absent. But around 350 million years ago, in a time geologists call the Carboniferous, the planet underwent a radical change. This was the true Promethean moment. Then it all comes together, and we have a, a dramatic period, a rather long period, where the Earth has a lot more fire than we see today. 
During the Carboniferous, trees, ferns, and other plants expanded and thrived like never before. Like their bacterial ancestors, they transformed the atmosphere, raising oxygen levels to the highest they have ever been, 35%. Compare that with today's level of just 21%. So basically, the Carboniferous atmosphere was a lot more combustible than it is today. Some scientists even speculate that lightning would have lit the surrounding air on fire, momentarily coating each bolt in a red and orange flame. With increased oxygen levels and abundant plant matter, wildfires were rampant. We obviously had a lot of fire going on. Now, we don't know what those fires were like. And this is where the evolutionary history of fire gets hazier. Fire is fire isn't it? How can we not know what these fires were like? There's an old adage in fire that the fine fuels drive the fire. That is the grasses, the, the, you know, the, the canopy needles, whatever. The small stuff is really where it reacts quicker, so the whole front will move in flame with that. Today, the, the most expansive uh, fuel and sort of the interstitial fuel to carry fire around different landscapes is grass. Well, grass didn't appear until the Miocene. This was roughly 20 million years ago, which means for 300 million years, between the Carboniferous and the Miocene, fire had to have been very different from how we picture it today. So what, what did we do for several hundred million years without grass? What kind of fires did we have? Uh, were they, you know, peat fires, like we see in swamps today? Swamps dry out occasionally, they burn. Uh, were they those kinds of fires? Were they sort of uh, smoldering fires, flickering here and there? Who knows? Uh, we don't have a good we don't have a good sense yet. But they were probably different from what we have now. Because fire's behavior depends so much on what's burning, and because we don't have a very clear picture of what was growing 350 million years ago, we don't really know what those fires were like. However, there are thick layers of charcoal that date back to this time. So something was burning. Scientists believe that these fires covered a much larger percentage of Earth's surface. They burned longer and sent so much ash into the air that the sky would have glowed orange, like a permanent sunset. Millions of years pass. New plants appear, and climates shift. Dinosaurs come and go. Fire changes too. Then we reach a period where oxygen stabilizes the climate, starts moving into something more like the present day, say over the last 50 million years or so. There's plenty of ignition. There's plenty of fuel out there, and the fluctuations of climate seem to be more important in determining where fire burns. Local climate controlled what fuel grew where, so fire could only exist where it was wet enough to grow plants, but dry enough to burn. And then... Then the next, the next change, the ignition. What changes in the last two million years also with the climate is the arrival of uh, a species that acquires the ability uh, to manipulate fire and eventually to start it. We can fire at will. If you... And suddenly ignition now can be considered almost constant wherever people are. And that has introduced a huge change. Uh, suddenly 
the Earth has acquired as a broker, as a species monopolist, ultimately over fire, that can begin matching fuel and flame. We are the monopolists over fire, and that increases our, our power over the environment. With the Anthropocene, Steve sees fire entering a new stage in its evolutionary history. For the first time, a single organism has learned to manipulate fire to such a degree that the planet is being transformed like never before. There's a lot of evidence now that cooking was a big deal. Uh, we, we got big heads and small guts because we could cook food. And then we went to the top of the food chain because we could cook landscapes. And now we're entering another phase change in the history of fire, a rather profound one in which we're beginning to cook the planet. With the arrival of humans and the growth of industrial civilizations, Steve sees an evolution, a split in fire's domain. In the wildlands, we alter the fuel. We thin forests, move different plant species around the globe, and suppress fires. And these changes are intersecting with other global forces. Fire season is extending, and that's something, say, over the last uh, 40 to 50 years. It's extended significantly, and climate is a huge factor, but it's also what's out on the landscape, and that's the result of land use and land use history. It's also a result of how we've um, managed fire in our public wildlands. We're rewiring uh, sort of the fire regimes of the planet in a large way. But the biggest shift in fire history isn't happening on wild landscapes. With the arrival of humans, uh, it begins a, a major reorganization of fire on the planet, and we've gone from burning surface fuels to burning lithic landscapes, in the form of fossil biomass. Instead of burning material on Earth's surface, we're digging ancient organic material out of the ground. When we strike the match and set fire to the rock, we tap into pools of chemical energy that have been lying dormant for millions of years. We harness the flame and funnel it into our machines. In this way, the Anthropocene can be viewed as the intertwined history of people and fire. So many people now live in cities particularly in industrial countries. So people have no experience in their personal lives about how fire works. They don't cook their food on fire anymore. They don't heat their homes, for the most part, with fire anymore. Uh, they don't work in factories that run with fire. Um, fire is gone from vernacular life, and they have no experience of it. In the Anthropocene, we're increasingly losing our connection to fire. Every year during wildfire season, we fight fires. We see them as the other, a menace, something that needs to be controlled to protect nature. I go back to the late 18th century, the Enlightenment. Uh, fire before then was pretty much a fundamental phenomenon of nature and recognized as almost a, an organizing principle by which to understand nature. And then fire is taken out of the intellectual world, and that's about the same time we begin putting more and more fire into machines, uh, running steam engines, burning fossil fuel, accelerating, and so taking fire out of everyday life. So it disappeared from intellectual life as well as everyday life. 
change. So that's really where the shift begins. And now we're beginning to see the consequence of removing fire. The story of fire is the story of Earth's evolution. Layers of ancient charcoal record the emergence of new vegetation, fluctuations in our climate, and the story of humans as the sole organism with the ability to manipulate fire. As the planet continues to evolve, and humans along with it, fire will no doubt keep pace. Producer Miles Trayer. The story of Prometheus at the beginning of this piece was voiced by our friend Nick Weiler. Thanks, Nick, for lending us your sonorous voice and beautiful elocution. Before we wrap up today, we actually have a bonus segment featuring our friend Judd Parton. He's a researcher at UT Austin's Institute for Geophysics. Judd just published a paper about the Younger Dryas, which came out today in Nature Communications. Our producer, Mike Osborne, called Judd on Skype to talk about his study, which is all about abrupt climate change. Here's Mike and Judd. Is it, is it, make sure it's recording. So, hello? Hello, may I speak with Michael Osborne? <laughs> is it God? How you What's doing? <laughs> exactly. How you doing, man? It's good to hear your voice again. Doing quite well. How are you? I'm very well. Things are going good on my end. All right, so let's get this going. You know, there's a lot of people out there that actually probably don't know that the climate system is capable of abrupt climate change. Can you just introduce the concept for us? Yes. So if you look at what's happened over the last 200 years, not a whole lot has gone on. But if you go back into the geologic record, we can see evidence for a whole lot of big changes that have happened in the Earth, kind of unexpected, large and natural. And so you once described this as being a little bit like like puberty? <laughs> yes, I did, Mike. Thank you for bringing that up. Uh, yeah, so, ice uh, where there didn't used to be ice? <laughs> there were large ice caps about 20,000 years ago on top of North America and Asia. And so this was known as the last glacial maximum. You have, you know, the Ice Age movie with the squirrel running around trying to get the nut. And right around 20,000 years ago, the Earth started to warm all on its own just due to changes in the Earth's orbit, how it's going around the sun, a little more sunlight comes in, and all that ice starts to melt. And it took about 10,000 years to melt uh, all that ice. And uh, that's where I said it's kind of like puberty, that the Earth is kind of growing up, growing out of this stage. And of course, just like during puberty with people, a lot of crazy things happen. Abrupt climate change is uh, some of the things that happen during this time period known as deglaciation. So we're not quite sure what's going to happen to the climate in the future. So we like to study past analogs. It's kind of like going to a psychiatrist. They lay you down on the couch and they say, tell me about your past. And you may have some indication about what may happen in the future, kind of the likelihoods. We don't know exactly, but we're kind of using these past times as uh, analogs for what may happen in the future. And, and what's like the poster child event? What, what is the reference point for abrupt climate events? The Younger Dryas is a time period right around 12, 13,000 years ago. That's, that's the poster child for abrupt climate change. And so as we're deglaciating from the last glacial maximum 20,000 years ago, I mentioned that we're going through this deglaciation and the Earth's warming up. And right around 14,000 years ago, all of a sudden it er, hit the brakes, did a U-turn, and started cooling off in the North Atlantic. And so how fast kinda, was that? Er? 
uh, that Earth is it's a U-turn, so we should be warming. We should be getting warmer, 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 and temperatures turn around and do a, a 180 and abruptly cool. Abruptly, that's what I'm asking, though. What what what, yep. what do you mean by abruptly here? Uh, abruptly, so Greenland ice cores are kind of the gold standard record for cataloging this event, and the ice cores indicate that it could happen in almost as little as three years, somewhere around in uh, 20 years. So we're talking within decades. The temperature in the North Atlantic area went from what should be warming up to almost back to full glacial conditions. So something like 15 to 20 degrees Fahrenheit. So, you know, without going into a whole lot of detail, what's sort of the simple picture? What's what's the story of why this happened? So the, the ocean and the atmosphere act to move heat from the tropics to the poles. We have a lot of warm water in the tropics. Everyone goes to the beach, sits on the beach, you know, takes in the sun, likes the warm weather. Well, the, the ocean, especially in the Atlantic region, the Gulf Stream and the atmosphere, work to move that heat from the tropics up to the poles. And it's one of the reasons that uh, Europe is so warm today, because that heat is being moved up north. So you can actually go out and hang out uh, on the beaches of, say, France, where if you go to the same latitude in Canada, it's going to be quite chilly. The idea is that during the Younger Dryas, that heat stopped moving north, and that ocean conveyor belt got shut down or drastically reduced. And so if you stop transporting the heat to the north for some reason, that area is going to get cold really quick. Right. Okay. But it, it's not just that region that feels the effects. Correct. Correct. So you can think of it as kind of like a domino effect where the big first domino falling is going to be this ocean conveyor heat system reducing. And once that domino falls, then it cascades throughout the whole climate system. Yeah. So where are the fingerprints of the Younger Dryas outside of the North Atlantic region? Uh, there's evidence throughout most of North America, South America, of course, Europe, parts of Africa. But when you start going to the other side of the globe, then it starts to get a little fuzzy as to how far did it propagate? Did it get to New Zealand? Did it get to China? And so uh, what we looked at were what is the evidence in the Western Tropical Pacific? Excellent. So tell us a little bit about what you looked at in this study. We used Cave stalagmites, these are the ones which grow from the floor upwards. They're mighty and grow up as opposed to stalactites, which are tight and hang tight from the ceiling. So we use the chemical composition of these cave stalagmites to tell us about how much it rained in the past. Yeah, I guess, actually, I just want to be clear on that. Like, we're talking about temperature changes in the North Atlantic, but one of the things you're really interested in is in other climate variables like rainfall and, like, how it might affect monsoons. Correct. Temperature is a measure of heat content, and it kind of tells you about the energy of the system. Well, how does that play out? A lot of times it plays out as changes in precipitation or rainfall. So we kind of want to know if this would occur in the future, what would be the conditions that would happen on Earth if that ocean conveyor belt in the future did shut down? How widespread would it be and how many people would be affected by it? So basically what you're doing is looking at this event in the North Atlantic and seeing how fast and and how it expressed itself in the Western Pacific and in East Asia? Yep. You can think of kind of how fast and how far. And a lot of people say, oh, you know, you're on the other side of the earth. How are you going to experience changes from some from some change over here? Well, it turns out that that's a pretty big domino and it does cascade throughout most of the most of the earth. And we saw evidence that uh, in the Philippines, in uh, the Western Tropical Pacific, that there was quite a reduction in rainfall during the Younger Dryas. And it turns out that the changes in the Western Pacific are synchronous with the North Atlantic. We, we think that what happened is a lot of fresh water came into the North Atlantic and that changed ocean conditions and reduced that ocean circulation. And at the same time that the temperatures cool in the North Atlantic, rainfall starts to reduce in, in the Western Tropical Pacific. But the caveat, the, 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 the clincher here for this study was that although they start at the same time, 
for them to reach kind of the full conditions for the full effect to be felt, it doesn't take decades. It actually takes centuries in the Western Pacific. Okay, so it's felt in the Western Pacific, yep. but it sort of plays out over a longer stretch of time. Yep. So it takes a little longer. So instead of on the order of, you know, 20 to 80 years, it takes maybe four or 500 years for the effects to fully propagate over to the Western Tropical Pacific and for it to reach kind of the full younger driest conditions. Right. Okay. So all other things being equal, obviously we, we said this is an, an analogy. Um, mm-hmm. All other things being equal were something similar to happen today. And were we to experience abrupt change in the North Atlantic, there actually might be time to adapt or, or, or adjust to new conditions because it plays out over hundred years in, in the monsoon region of the East Asia. Correct. But the, the flip side is we could expect these rainfall changes, which are going to be affecting pretty much billions of people. But because it takes a while for them to actually hit full term, we have time to correct the situation, hopefully do something to mitigate it and reverse the temperature with, uh, without rainfall being affected too much. Awesome. Okay, so last question here. I mean, contextualize this study for us in, in terms of the fear of an abrupt climate event. Oh, yes, uh, absolutely. There's still huge questions. We're, we're not quite sure why it takes centuries or what are the players. Is it ice sheets? Is it oceans? Is it land feedbacks? And the conditions are not exactly the same as they were today. So we have to turn to climate models and use them to help us to try to understand exactly the mechanisms that are occurring. But, you know, I'm an optimist. I like a, a little sign of hope. So it's not all doom and gloom and that uh, an abrupt climate change is going to, you know, wipe out civilization. Uh, but at the same time, it doesn't mean we can sit on our hands because the longer it takes to correct, the longer it's going to take to recover. It's an awesome study. I'm super psyched about it. And I, and I think it's a really important contribution. Congratulations on it again. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me to come chat with you and uh, look forward to hear from you again. That's it for this episode of Generation Anthropocene. Next time on the podcast... I am, however, the soundtracker. And most of these recordings have never been heard before by anyone other than myself. I've amassed this huge library over the last three decades, uh, knowing that these soundscapes were quickly vanishing. That'll be next time on Generation Anthropocene. Our show is produced by Miles Traer, Mike Osborne, and me, Leslie Chang. Our theme music is by Maserati. We want to thank Pam Matson, Dean of Stanford School of Earth, Energy, and Environmental Sciences. We also want to thank Tom Hayden. This episode was recorded at KZSU Stanford 90.1. Our website is genanthro.com, and you can find us on Twitter, at Gen Anthropocene. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.